have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Mark. Uh, we're in week four of our series through Mark. We're still in the first chapter. We're going to be uh, quite a while in Mark. And the whole point of it is that we will learn what did Jesus do. Not what would Jesus do, but actually what did Jesus do. And therefore, I hope that we're going to learn as a church, as a body, that we are to do the things Jesus did. And so what you're going to see in the coming weeks is that there's three main things that he did. He definitely taught. He was a teacher. And we're going to learn about this week. He was a teacher. And he also was a healer. We're going to go into that more specifically next week, although this week applies as well. And he also, the third part is that he cast out demons, and that's the part we're going to focus on today, and we're going to start off, um, I'm going to go through some history, so we're going to hit some head, we're going to, we're going to lick the head, head part of it, learn a little history, learn what the scripture's saying, and then prayerfully, I hope as a church, we're going to ask individually, what does this mean for my heart? Where is this, a, what, God, what are you saying to my heart? And then as we go out, we actually apply it. Because if we're not applying what we learn, is it worthless? Does it bear any fruit? No. And we're going to see more of that in in Jesus' example today. So the next verse that comes up here is Colossians 1.28. He, or Jesus, is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Now, this is from last week. Jesus is the one we proclaim by admonishing and teaching everyone with what? All wisdom so that we collectively, if you're in Christ this morning, may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Who is this on? This is on us, right? It's not on the elders. I mean, it is on us, but it is on everyone. We are all ministers of the body of Christ. This is on everyone, and so he is the one we proclaim. So last week we talked about Jesus calls disciples. He called disciples. His great commission was go into the world and make disciples, right? So I've been pondering these thoughts in my head, and it's a It's derived really off of what Francis Chan said in his video last week, and I'm going to say it in a couple different ways, and it's not meant to be a a prosecutorial statement. I'm not prosecuting you, but I'm asking in your heart that you would reflect some of these questions. I am reflecting some of these questions in me, and and so they might be statements, they might be questions, but ask and, and think if they're true. If... I am on mission. If I am on mission, and by mission it doesn't mean that I just am reading my Bible and praying, that's good. But if I am on true mission with Jesus Christ, I absolutely need fellowship. If I am on mission with Jesus, then I absolutely need, hand-in-hand, fellowship with other believers. All right, can you agree with that statement? All right, 
Now, I'm not taking away from God's sovereignty. We talked about that, but I'm just making a statement on the ground level, on the vertical or the horizontal level of us relationally. If I am on mission, it requires that I am in fellowship and a discipleship relationship. And the question is why? You should be asking the question if you don't really get what I'm saying. Why is because when I'm on mission, the enemy is out there and he's looking to tear me to pieces. The enemy is not only working in my mind through my thoughts, but in actions around me. Is God enough? Yes. But he gave us each other to cling to. So I have found the more I am on mission, the more I absolutely need fellowship. And so the church, and I'll just say us included at times, I have said in my head and maybe spoke out loud that you've got to come to church to be a part of the family. You've got to be in fellowship. And the problem that happens with a lot of church-going people is that they hear those statements, and they come to church, and they say, this, I'm doing what you've asked me to do. I've come to church. Matter of fact, I've gone to a life group. And matter of fact, hey, I might have even done a special Bible study on my own with the, on the video thing, and I have been you know, trying to be relational, that stuff, and I feel lonely. And so then the truth of what is perceived as a truth from the church comes and it, it becomes like it's not truth at all because you might sit in the pew or sit at home and go, I am not, I am not believing what he said because I am absolutely lonely. I am devoid of any spiritual power. So the converse is also true. If I am on mission, it's not exactly converse, but it's close. If I am on mission with God and I am not in fellowship, I am working on my own strength and on my own efforts and not only do I feel lonely, but I feel like God is devoid of power and I don't have the power to do my mission. I become the Lone Ranger and I do it on my strength. Yeah, I believe God. Yeah, I'm praising him and giving him glory for everything, but I feel weak and empty inside and God seems less than. I know he's not, but haven't you ever felt, let's be honest, you ever felt God doesn't quite cut it sometimes in your life? We're real here, right? I'm not saying that he doesn't, but I'm saying our perception. So when we are on mission and we don't have real relationships that build into us and invest in us and call out our crap, and, and we're allowing them to come in. I'm not talking about distant people who aren't with us day by day. I'm talking about people who are in the trenches with us. Then we become messed up inside. Eric left to himself. And if you're new here, my name's Eric. Just so you know who I'm talking about. Eric left to himself is a mess. Thank God he loves me anyway. But Eric in relationship and trusting God and in fellowship with other believers who aren't just the pat me on the back, boy, Eric, you're doing a great job all the time, but who are willing to say, you know, I see this and I see this. And that's not all the time, but it's like willing to check. That is what strengthens my soul. So I haven't even gotten into the sermon yet. 
question that you have to ask yourself is Jesus said, go and make disciples. Are you doing that? We're going to keep going into that theme. Don't worry. Don't, you don't have to launch out into some big process right now. Are you doing that? And if you aren't, the question you have to ask yourself is why? And two, if you are, are you doing it the way Jesus told us to do it? So we talked last week about multiplication versus addition. Multiplication means that we're going to invest in a couple of people and invest in them well. And then in order to do that, we're walking hand in hand with people. And as God gets us in these these relationships, and they become transformational relationships, we begin to see not a bigger God, but God as he is. Going it alone. If you come and you've been part and you've been going it alone and God is smaller than, it's like we're taking and viewing through a microscope and trying to see God, then we're not have the right lenses there. So I guess I should get on to my message. So that's the introduction. How you like that? Does that work? All right. We're going to continue on Mark chapter 1. We're at verse 21 through 22. Should be up here. Yep. And they went into Capernaum. That's Jesus and a number of his disciples. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, I want to just, we're going to look at a map here in a, in a minute, not just yet, but we're going to talk about where Capernaum is. And you were there on the Sabbath. One thing I want you to get that Mark is a bullet point sort of preacher as he writes this. So time has passed since he's called his disciples. We're not like the next hour. He called his disciples, and all of a sudden he walks into the synagogue, and he's allowed to preach. Chances are there has been a, a, a significant amount of time where Jesus was known as a good teacher, and they welcomed him in. Matter of fact, they had to have a quorum. This was a town that was big enough to have a synagogue in, and they would have sort of itinerant people come, people who were knowledgeable in the word come and preach. So Jesus became one of those people. And they let him in. And it said that they, he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The scribes were your modern day PhDs in biblical studies. They understood the Bible. They knew the Bible back and forth. They understood it intellectually. They had the head down. They knew what word goes before this. They could quote you uh, the Hebrew from the Old Testament. They could speak multiple different things. They could actually recite um, a lot of the Old Testament, some of them could do most of it. I mean, they're brilliant people, absolutely brilliant people. And so um, he spoke, it says, as one who had authority. We're going to talk about that later, but not as a scribe. So the scribe spoke off of knowledge, and Jesus spoke with authority and life. Again, we're going to go further. So we got a map that's going to come up here, and I was hoping it's going to be really hard for you to see, but I... I learned today that a laser pointer does not work on these TVs. So just so you know, I wanted a laser pointer. It doesn't work. So the bottom uh, body of water, you've got the Mediterranean on the left. Here in the bottom part, you have the Dead Sea. Off to the, uh, the, the uh, west of it is Bethlehem and Jerusalem. If you follow it straight up, uh, you have the River uh, Jordan that goes into the Sea of Galilee. Actually, it pours down this way and goes up to that next body of water, 
off to the west is Nazareth, where Jesus was born. It's sort of almost in the green area off to the western part. And Capernaum is just on the north, just a little bit northwest on the point on top of Sea of Galilee. So Jesus was born in Nazareth. He ended up going south. Um, again, if I had a pointer, it's near Anon. It's a, it's a little red dot in the, in the piece there. Near, north of there is where John the Baptist was. That's where he, near in that area is where Jesus was baptized. He spent time in the wilderness, and then they proceeded north up into the Sea of Galilee to the, north, the northern portion, which is called Capernaum. And we've got a video that we're going to play that should explain that a little bit. On the shores of the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, we find the ruins of an ancient fishing village with a claim that no other city in the world has. Capernaum was the adult hometown and central hub for the ministry of Jesus. This wasn't just a place Jesus visited. This was his earthly home. He ate here, laughed here, and slept here. Capernaum is located in Galilee, about 90 miles north of Jerusalem. But in terms of its geography and atmosphere, it's a world away. The apostles Peter, James, Andrew, and John were from here, as well as the notable tax collector, Matthew. Jesus often taught in the synagogue at Capernaum. The ruins of the 4th century synagogue standing today are built on the foundation of the synagogue Jesus would have taught in. The ruins of St. Peter's home were honored and turned into one of the earliest Christian gathering places since shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection. The home was expanded and turned into a more formalized Byzantine church in the centuries that followed. Capernaum is known for many of Jesus' acts. While Jesus was teaching in this synagogue, a man possessed with a demon interrupted him. Jesus cast it out here in the synagogue of Capernaum. In Capernaum, the crowds around Jesus were so thick that a man who was paralyzed was carried by his friends to the roof of the house Jesus was teaching in. It was one of the first run-ins Jesus had with the religious leaders, for Jesus told the man his sins were forgiven. A Roman centurion, who had helped build the synagogue in Capernaum, sent for Jesus to heal his servant. In an ironic twist, he didn't want Jesus to come to his home, but rather to just heal from afar. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. The servant was healed in that moment. Today, it is now an archaeological site. Thankfully, for the Christian desiring to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and achieve context for where and how he lived his earthly life, Capernaum stands as a beautiful reminder of the time when the Savior walked the lands of the Galilee. We've got another map up here. You can sort of see um, 
the Sea of Galilee a little bit closer. The movie did a, a good job of that. Uh, but you've got Mount Tabor off to the west, Nazareth just past that. So I want you to just get a grip of where Jesus was walking as we do this together. So in uh, Capernaum is actually a name, is named by, it's called the village of Nahum. So if you go to the Old Testament prophet Nahum, uh, this is a village they believed was named after him. In Nahum 1.7, it says this, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Nahum was the prophet that came and pronounced judgment, the judgment of God on um, Nineveh after the time of Jonah when the Ninevites turned back to their ways and began, it was like took away numerous things. It sort of took away, God took away their military strength. He took away their corporate merchant type strength and he also took away their political strength. Everything just went and the people fled. So this Capernaum, is named after the Old Testament prophet Nahum. In Isaiah 9.1, we learn a little more sort of foreshadowing, if you would, the Old Testament talking about Jesus. In in verse 1, it says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So Isaiah was talking about Jesus' presence in Galilee of the nations, and this is the whole area that Jesus is in right now. So let's go back to Mark chapter 1, 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So he went in there and he just spoke like none other. He was gifted like none other. They did not understand it because he did not earn his PhD, if you would. He got his gifting, as we know, he got it from the Father, not from man's way. He was taught and all that stuff, but he had a whole lot more to offer. It continues on, Mark uh, 123. And immediately, and if you've been with us for a couple weeks, here's that word immediately again. It's over and over in Mark, was there was in their synagogue a man with unclean spirit. Now, until I did, until I did a study on this, I didn't see that word there. Just look at that statement. And immediately that was in their synagogue, their meaning who? The scribes, the people, right? So in their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit. So what does that tell you about this place? Some of you have said before to me, and you get pushback, your church. You know, no, this is not my church. This is not my church. This is God's church. This is Jesus' church. So if it becomes man's church, you've got problems. So the scribes had, they, it was established that it was their church And this man with an unclean spirit came in, and it says he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Remember, Nazareth is where Jesus was born in that, or back in that area where he lived, not born, um, off to the west. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So not only did, was Jesus identified as Jesus of Nazareth, 
he, he was, this demon was feared that Jesus was going to destroy them, meaning multiple demons. It wasn't anything, it wasn't singular, it was multiple. And he's worried about that, and he says, I know who you are. Now, up to this point, no one really knew who he was. And he says, the Holy One of God. So I want you to think about something. The only other time in the Old Testament that are in the Bible that someone was called the Holy One of God was Samson, the Nazarite. Sorry, Samson, that wasn't you. Uh, we have a guy named Samson on the front row. He got happy. Uh, Samson died. Just say no. Okay. Uh, but Samson had physical strength, did he not? And so this demon recognized Jesus. He calls him the Holy One. And I think it was because he knew that Jesus could destroy them, not so much physically, but spiritually. There was power because he came from God. So let's look at this next slide. The demons become the second party in Mark's presentation of Jesus, following the voice from heaven at the baptism to, the, to announce Jesus Jesus' divine sonship. So no one knew who Jesus was. John knew something was up. John understood that Jesus was someone, but God said, this is who, my beloved son, right, in whom I am well pleased. Now you have Jesus making the journey around, ending up in a synagogue. No one knows who he was. They knew he was a great teacher, but then you have a demon go, I know who you are. You're Jesus, the Holy One. And so he was used, uh, this demon was used to announce Jesus' sonship. So Mark 1.25 continues, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. I want you to notice something. Just a couple things, I guess. Number one, they were told to be silent. We're going to look a little bit in this further, but there was something about Jesus' early ministry where he did not want to proclaim why he was there. He knew this demon was, he knew the demon knew who he was, but he didn't want the demon to say who he was. Now see me, if I were Jesus... I'd be like, go ahead, say who's here. <laughs> yeah, I'll let the demon tell you who I am. You know, and I'd have had a little pep in my step. Not Jesus. He said, be silent and come out. And then what happened? He healed him. He healed him. The man who was full with the unclean spirit. I want you to think about something. In Jesus' ministry, Jesus focus was on teaching. Now bear with me, because you're going to hear what you're going to feel like are some tensions in the things that I've said. Jesus focused on teaching, and only when his teaching was interrupted, someone showed up while he was teaching. People who were filled with uh, demons were you know, would show up and interrupt his teaching, it was then and only then that he would heal. 
Jesus didn't go around and go, hey, I'm the itinerant healer. Come on Friday night at 8 o'clock, you know, an hour after sun goes down, and we're going to have a healing service. Think about it. When he was proclaiming God's word, when he was teaching truth, opportunities walked into him. People with problems walked in. People who were sick walked in. Demon-possessed people walked in. And then he was, he was more than happy and willing to be interrupted and take care of business. I think sometimes we try to organize God's plan. <laughs> Hello? <laughs> Last week we had a baby dedication up here. I was like, <laughs> we're used to babies. It's fun. Baby over there. So Jesus taught, and people who were sick came. And Jesus freed the ones who had demons and healed the ones who were sick. So I have to, it begs the question, so I'm going to push a little into the heart thing. I wonder why in the American church, I just say that just to put America on trial, not, uh, the American church on trial, not to like kill the world. So I, we put an oasis on trial. Could it be that we do not see the need for the fellowship and mission I was talking with because we're not proclaiming the gospel, we're not teaching others, we're not in discipleship relationships that put us, uh, that put the need to be erupted on the spotlight and the need to call on God's Holy Spirit to do a crazy work, and I mean crazy by being an awesome work of God, and we're excited about it because we're just sort of busy doing our plan of being a Christian. That was a big run on sentence, I think. Say it a different way, maybe. Jesus was busy doing what the Father commanded. We just said earlier, what did the Father command of us? That we go and do what? By doing what? Four things. Teach. Teaching them. We'll just stick on that. Baptizing, yeah. Teaching, I mean, so let's just start there. He started with teaching. And you could go, hey, this is me. This is not just my responsibility. Hey, guys, just so you know, I'm, there is a cry room back there, right there, back on the right. He'll be great there. You can hear everything, and other, other people will lament with you <laughs> the challenge of raising kids. <laughs> yeah, now I got an amen out of that. <laughs> We're used to, I mean, we got, oh, my Lord, we won't get into it. Yeah, I'm not going into all that. I'll, I'll get on another rabbit trail. But we were called to teach. Jesus did what? Not what would Jesus do. What did he do? He taught. He taught. And while he was teaching, he got interrupted. And he didn't see it as a bother. He saw it as an opportunity to show God's glory. If you and I aren't on mission and doing what he called us to do, 
then chances are we're not going to see the exponential working of the kingdom by God's doing because we're doing it our way and not God's way. And we wonder what's happening in our lives. First, um, I want you to look at Mark chapter 3. It's up on the screen, verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Now, we're going to get into that later uh, as we go into Mark chapter 3. But I want to say that Jesus began to come in to other people's houses, the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the, the people who were doing church. He came in and he began to show that it wasn't working. And he, he not only demonstrated by binding the one who was demon-possessed, but he had in all of these people who were doing things their way for years and years and years, and they were astonished. They're just wondering. So Jesus went in and he bound the strong house and he ends up plundering it. If you think of later on in his life when he went into, he said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. And he went into and saw people selling stuff and making a big market out of the work of his work. He just like, this is not to do. Mark 1, 27. And they were amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So when he taught, he not only taught truth. I could sit up here and I could expound upon, if I've done my studies right, the Greek and the Hebrew and all this stuff, and I can read you uh, things that I've read, and I could give you great quotes from scholars, but apart from the Holy Spirit doing a work with my futile words, he makes them strong. He should bring life to them. Apart from that, I can do nothing. So they were up there expounding on their intellectual knowledge. They were the smartest theological guys. They were, they had, um, I probably shouldn't say that. Uh, <laughs> when you have a little ADD issue, sometimes things come in your head that you probably shouldn't say, so I'll, I'll back off of that. But they thought they were smart. And not only that, they wanted to let everyone know how smart they were. And so when they would walk into the sanctuary, now it's not like us. The premium seats are in the back for you all, just so you know now. The church is the reverse. Now the premium seats are in the back. We have to beg people to sit up front. But in the old days, the scribes would come in and they would walk in and they'd just sort of like strut in their stuff and people would get out of their way and they would sit and they would have the places of honor. So you guys are, are in the place of honor in the Old Testament and the early New Testament. And the scribes wanted you to know it. They would walk through the town of Capernaum and they would, they would wear stuff. You would know what they were and people would give them way. They would allow them egress to get by. They would defer to them. They would tip their hat to them and get out of the way. Is this what Jesus did? No. He didn't demand the front seat. He didn't demand that the demon tell who he was so that everyone could be astonished. He did none of that. He proclaimed God's kingdom. And God's kingdom came. And so the teachers 
considered it a new teaching with authority. Man, O for a church. O for Oasis. To be Jesus spirit-led and go and proclaim the truth with authority into a dying world. So that even the smartest people would go, there's something different here. There's something new going on. There's something fresh here. There's something about this person that doesn't need the accolades. It doesn't need the names and all this stuff and highlight that these people, a microcosm of oasis are out there pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus saying, he has made my life straight. I am a wreck and he saved me. He wants that for you. Do you want to know Jesus? And they're wowed by it, not because you gave an articulate response, but because because you spoke with authority. And then maybe, just maybe, and we're going to look at Jesus' example, we would need, there would be clumps of men and women broken out and praying and, and edifying and encouraging one another and praying for God's spirit to be upon them because they realize this is too big a message for me. I can't do it. And we're going to go, yes, you can, but Jesus can. Is that true? Boy, whew, lost my voice. But if we keep doing, and I'm not speaking to everyone, don't get a guilt complex, listen to the spirit. But if we model with church, what we've seen of church, most of us, many of us, we're going to have the same results. And maybe we'll have 400 years of silence. Or when God was quiet, he wasn't silent. But I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the case. I think as we go through Mark, and we're willing to look at what Jesus did and know that we're called to do the same thing, that God will use us and he'll be glorified and we will be the followers of Jesus who don't need the acclaim, who don't need our name mentioned, who don't need anything, but know that one day we'll stand before the Father and say, all I did was for you because you loved me. That is what a church that is following the biblical model I think will look like. I'm excited about Trends, if you would. I think God is using a lot of people here to do a lot of really good things, amazing things. I'm talking supernatural things. I'm not even making that up. I'm not saying it to sound cool, but I've seen it. But I think that as that collective comes together and God begins to just weave us together in the, in the mind of discipleship and fellowship together, that we'll see great things. So uh, James Edwards says this, in the Gospel of Mark... The person of Jesus is more important than the subject of his teaching. Just let that sentence sink in. The person of Jesus is more important than the subject of his teaching. That doesn't mean more important than God. I'm talking about intellectual knowledge. He talked in parables often. But to know his teaching is one thing, but to know Jesus is far greater I don't want us to be a church that know the teaching but don't know Jesus. 
We've got to guard against it. It goes on, if we want to know what the gospel or teaching of Jesus consists of, we are directed to its embodiment in Jesus, the teacher. When you go to your Bible, we need, when we go to our Bible, we need to open it up and ask the teacher to teach us. And not just teach us information. Just say, Lord, not what I think, not what I think is important, but what you think and what you want me to do with this. I am an open page. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And then we read the scriptures and we see Jesus in every page and he begins to transform our lives and all we do is hand that to someone else. We don't bring a lot of intelligence to the mix. I have countless people going, I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough of the Bible. Fooey. That's an old term. Fooey. I'm trying to hit multi-generations here, all right? I'm just, some of you younger people are going, what did he just say? Hashtag, I can't even spell it. But if Jesus is enough, then he will be your teacher. And as you begin to teach, you begin to know you have a message. And as you have the message, you know you need fellowship. And as you have fellowship, you'll grow in your understanding of the scriptures. And as you have that together, Christ will be glorified. And it's not dependent on you anymore. And you see the discipleship process work and God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And you're jazzed up. And we have no issues with people coming to church anymore. Because people need it. They need each other. 1 Corinthians 4.20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Head, heart, hands. How is the power of God being demonstrated in your life and mine? It's a personal question. Saying I came to church, check, not really. Maybe you just got to the head part and you learned a little bit more. You know where Capernaum is. Does not consist of talk. Not that God doesn't use our speech. How beautiful are the mountain of those who bring good news. We bring good news through our voices. I get that. But it's in power. It's God using his power through you as a conduit of the gospel. Mark 1.28. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And I think there's a warning here. If you are walking with Jesus and God is doing great things with you, I'm, a, I'm, like, I'm just like, I'm, I'm a cheerleader for you. There are many in here who are cheering you on. But the danger is when God begins to use us sometimes as we get, let it get to our head and we think that we are maybe better than someone else because we did this and God used us, that is not the message we need to have. We need to do what Jesus did. Hope, oh, stay right there. Don't say my name. It's not about me. 
and it be genuine and not just be Christianese. You know what Christianese is like that? Oh, don't, don't say my name or anything because God be the glory. And I mean, sometimes you can just feel that and it's not right. I've done it. I'm not trying to, you know, if it's you too, just embrace it. You know, I used to just, I used to cringe at people saying good things after the sermon because I was so conflicted in what that meant. It was like, I don't want to hear it, you know, and, I, I, and then you do want to hear it, and then you don't want to hear it, and if you don't, it's just messed up. But then when you get to the point where it's like, it's all about God. Corey Tenenbaum says, flowers to Jesus. You just take whatever it is, God. It's all yours. I don't need the credit. It brings you joy. No need for our pride to be tickled anymore because God says, I, ex- uh, I take down the pride, but I exalt the humble. Look what Jesus did. He did not take the prestige and let it go to his head. He got away, and he spent time with the Father. So lastly, up here, the, the, uh, our screen at the end here says, what did Jesus do? And I'm just going to ask you, how are you going to make a mark on this world this week like Jesus did? Not what would Jesus do. That's looking back. What did he do, and how am I going to do what he did? That's looking at today and tomorrow and Tuesday when the alarm clock doesn't go off and you're late for work, and the phone call rings and wakes you up and it's not good news. How are you going to make your mark? So as the worship team comes up, we're going to come to communion. Communion is a place for believers Uh, God said it is his table. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you don't have to be a member of Oasis or anything. We ask you that would come boldly to the table and take of the bread and the cup. Uh, Before you do, we ask you to consider, is there something that you need to turn from and just sort of confess before the Lord and make it right? Is there someone else that you need to reconcile with? The Bible says, go and deal with those things and deal with, deal with the people in my life, and deal with the stuff, and then come to the table. If you're committed to do that, and you're going to come, just come boldly, knowing that God's going to use that, and trust him in it. But uh, and lastly, it's, uh, we also have an opportunity for those regular tenders to give back. Would you all stand up, please, as we get ready to come? I'm just going to pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the table. Thank you for Jesus' example, and the bread, and the cup. Lord, I pray that we would look at this not just in remembrance, but looking forward to what you're going to do and your kingdom power here on earth as it is in heaven, here on Easton as it is in heaven. God, is our desire. Lord, may we make disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. Please come.